All right, if you have a copy of God's Word with you this morning, we are in Ecclesiastes 8, and we're going to be in the, the whole chapter. If you remember last week in Ecclesiastes 7, we went through uh, a bunch of issues facing life about wisdom and how is wisdom of any benefit to us. And this week, we're going to get a little bit more context. And this week, the, the preacher is going to give us a few situations and basically show us um, how do we keep wisdom in difficult situations. It's easy to talk about wisdom, but when you're faced with an actual issue that requires wisdom to navigate it, w- what do you do? And so he's, he's going to give us a few real-life, uh, very applicable situations uh, to show us how to use wisdom. So turn your attention to the reading of God's word, Ecclesiastes 8, and we'll be in the whole chapter, verses 1 through 17. Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause. For he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing. And the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything. Although the man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be. For who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, no will, uh, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I have observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat, and drink and be joyful for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun however much man may toil in seeking he will not find it out Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that your word not only tells us 
how we need to be saved, but gives us wisdom in how to live out a life uh, in pursuit of you, a life changed by that same grace that saves us. Would you be with us today that we would learn a bit more about the wisdom that you've given everyone here? Pray that this sermon, Lord, today would uh, glorify the Son of God, that it would edify the people of God, and that the Word of God would be magnified in it. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. Uh, We have all been in a situation that required wisdom, something difficult, either a business decision or a relational issue, but we couldn't just go with our gut or have a knee-jerk reaction. We needed to act with some thoughtfulness for whatever the situation uh, was presented to us. And it got me thinking about, if you've ever seen one of these TV shows that has actors uh, create an uncomfortable situation or maybe even an illegal situation, and the show is basically wanting to see what does the average person do when they're witnesses to something that's difficult? How do they act? And you know, one of the things that's you know, always interesting is eventually the show wouldn't be interesting if all it showed were people not acting. So there was one episode that I saw where a man goes into the, uh, a diner or something like that, a, a fast food restaurant, and he's actually a soldier. He's in his fatigues. And uh, they bring in a, a man that's Middle Eastern to be an actor in front of him. And the the Middle Eastern customer and the person behind the counter are supposed to have a confrontation. The the cashier is supposed to kind of be insulting and basically say nasty and prejudiced things against this Middle Eastern man. And it, it, it wanted to see what would everyone do. Well, the soldier had none of it. After just overhearing two remarks, he jumps down that cashier and reprimands him for just picking on this poor guy who just wants a sandwich. And, you know, gives him the riot act about how he serves his country so that we could be free of this type of just blatant racism and prejudice. And then, of course, they let the soldier know it's all a show. They're trying to see what people do. But the sad thing is they always have to say it took like six of these interactions before they got one person to say something. And I think a lot of times we get uncomfortable when we see a difficult situation. We don't know what to do. And so we either you know, cower in, in fear or we run away, but we, we want to be able to have wisdom and courage to do something. And that's what we see here in Ecclesiastes 8. The preacher is trying to give wise counsel to people in difficult situations. And he gives an encouragement right off the bat. The first verse talks about who is like the wise person who knows the interpretation of a thing? And this, the word for interpretation is used only a few times in Scripture this way. It's usually used by somebody like Joseph, who is able to interpret the dreams of the baker and the cupbearer and also the dreams of Pharaoh. It, it means that this, a wise person is somebody who can kind of figure out what God is doing in a situation. A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. As we grow in wisdom, there's the preacher saying, there's going to be characteristics about us that change. We're going to see things more clearly so that we know how to act in difficult situations. So he gives us this encouragement up front. Wisdom will help you. It will make you see things more clearly. It will be able to make you see how God is at work in difficult situations. 
So now let me present you with a difficult situation. In verses 2 through 9, we have this king and a wise royal counselor, and they're interacting with one another. And so in verse 2, it says, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. So verse 2 is, it's a bit tricky to translate, and there's debate about whether this is an oath that uh, was made to the king, whether it's an oath made to God, or whether it's God's oath to the king. The most likely option is that it is a subject, a royal subject's oath to a king where God is serving as a witness. And we see this in other parts of scripture of, of men, you know, making promises to David or to Solomon or to one of the kings, and God approves of this. It should also be noted that the most translations use this word command, but in the Hebrew, it's, it's not there. It literally says, keep the mouth of the king. And so this means that the subject, the royal subject, should keep and do whatever comes out of the king's mouth. And this is potentially kind of hard for us to figure out because we don't have an absolute, complete, sovereign ruler over us. Even when we were colonies and had King George III, by that point in the British monarchy, he wasn't just a complete sovereign. He actually had a parliament that kept him in check. He couldn't just do everything like he used to be able to, although I'm sure he would have loved that. But in the ancient world especially, and in medieval times, every word that came out of the king's mouth was law. Every desire was a desire to be fulfilled. And we do get this in the life of David. David has this desire while um, running from the Philistines or fighting them. It's a bit unclear. It comes near the end of David's life in 2 Samuel. And he has this longing for the water that comes from Bethlehem. But the Philistines are there. And so he says to, out loud, as if to himself, oh, what I would do for a cup of that water from the wells of Bethlehem. And Samuel records that three of his mighty men, just overhearing the desire of this king they love, decide to burst into Bethlehem, probably fight off a whole bunch of Philistines, scoop up a cup of water, and they bring it back to their king. That was the power a king had in those days. Uh, one study Bible note said that David's words were not a command in that situation or that context. But he probably didn't think anyone would act upon them. But that was the power of a king's word, that overhearing the longing to taste of his hometown drink would inspire three men to fulfill their king's desire. So we may not get that, but we could all get the desire to, you know, it's easy to serve somebody, a boss or a manager or a mayor or a ruler, when they're a good ruler. You know, you're much more likely to serve and be faithful to somebody or loyal to somebody when you see them doing good things. What about when they don't do good things? So for the most part, David was a pretty good king, but what about the bad kings? Should we still listen to them? If, if a ruler is so sovereign, and we know that even, you know, God sets up good kings and bad kings. Sometimes he sets up pagan kings to judge us, and sometimes he gives us good kings from, or kings from among us who end up being terrible. So what do we do when we have a bad ruler? The preacher cautions us to have fidelity and faithfulness to their authority because they are placed there by God without compromising 
our own conscience and without compromising something that would be outside of God's law. Look at verses uh, 3 and 6. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, What are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. So what we see here is that there's a loyalty to a king or there is a king or any other authority. That loyalty, it's got limits. In that world of absolute monarchy, it would be pretty dangerous to question what a king says. That's why the preacher says, who's going to tell a king, what are you doing? He's the king. He can do whatever he wants. But individual responsibility is stressed in the second part of verse 3. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. Just because a, can, a king can do whatever he wants doesn't mean that you have to then surrender or break God's rule. Don't get caught to God's rule. Don't get caught up in an evil cause because the king is just telling you to do it. The wise will find ways to bring up issues at the proper time and the just way. So this whole point is, how do we actually talk back to a leader that is abusing their power? That's why it's a proper time and a just way. How can they bring up something? Another illustration from King David's life, this time when he's a bad king. You remember David and Bathsheba, he seduces her, um, they have a child together, and he murders her husband to cover up his sin. So what is going to happen? Who is going to go before David and say, what are you doing? Nobody, because David's the king. Well, David had a wise counselor named Nathan who does confront the king in the proper time and in the right way. It's recorded in 2 Samuel 12. So Nathan uh, goes into the court, and how does he confront David? Do you remember this story at all? Does he go in and just says, what are you doing? No, because David may be in a bad mood and decide to, you know, kill him. Does he spread gossip and rumor around the court? No. By, by all we know from this incident, there were only like three people in the entire kingdom that knew what happened. Maybe there was gossip, but it wasn't going around. So how does Nathan confront wisely and justly an unjust ruler. He persuades him. He almost lures him in by showing him his fault and getting David to actually condemn himself. It is a brilliant piece of rhetoric and, and, and a way and model of acting wisely to bring up a bad situation. Nathan tells David of a story of a rich man with lots of flocks, lots of herds, and a poor man who has just one tiny little lamb. And Nathan says the rich man wanted to throw this great feast, but he didn't want to give up any of his sheep, any of his bulls, any of his lambs. So the rich man goes to the poor man and takes that one thing he valued most in the world. He takes it from him and he feeds the people and guests at his feast. 
David becomes so enraged and says to Nathan, bring me this man because he will surely die. And Nathan immediately springs the trap saying, you are the man, David. As the rich ruler took and killed, so you have taken what wasn't yours and committed murder. And from that, from that proper timing, from that just way of speaking God's truth to an unjust ruler and a particularly wise way of doing it, tricking the king into basically owning his own sin or condemning himself, we get Psalm 51, where David is just pleading with God to forgive him of his sin. We see a ruler who acted wickedly take ownership of what he did wrong. How many politicians today would say, I did something wrong? I I honestly don't know any U.S. politician who has ever admitted that. But I've seen examples of it, and thankfully I've seen them mostly in the church. And I'm not talking about the big mega church pastors who fall from grace and all of a sudden are pleading, we're going to go to couples therapy I've got, you know, I'm not going to be alone in meetings with women there anymore. We're going to have an outside accountant. I'm not going to embezzle him. I'm talking about something as simple as a pastor that I knew um, and attended his church. He made an adjustment to the morning worship service. You know how dangerous that can be. So he changed the Sunday school hour. And it, we all went along with it for like a few months. And he got up one Sunday morning. And I actually didn't think it was that big of a deal. He got up one Sunday morning. And before we did anything, he said, just to let you all know, effective immediately, next Sunday service, we are going back to the old schedule. And I want to tell everyone, this is on me. I convinced the session to change this. I was the one that thought it would be a good idea. And I have heard from many of you that I was wrong. And I believe I was wrong now. So I apologize. And we are going to go back to the way it used to be. That's not a leader giving in to people. It's a leader who listened to people wisely bring up why this was an issue. Why did it all of a sudden conflict and create problems for younger families or older people in the church? It takes tact and knowledge, an awareness, as we said, as the preacher said in the beginning, an interpretation of things going on that requires kind of divine guidance to figure out what needs to be done. Now, all of us, though, uh, may not be under a bad king. We may not be under a bad ruler. I mean, I know uh, in our country, whenever the person that we didn't want to win is in office, everything's terrible. And then once our guy or gal's in there, everything's great. But for the most part, if we could admit as people we got it pretty good still here in this country. We really haven't suffered cataclysmic issues from poor leadership that have led directly to a war that we've lost or famine like some other countries even today are facing. As I saw with North Korea just this week, their leader finally admitted that they're having, um, are on the brink of a massive famine. I saw something about coffee costs $100 there right now. Anyways, we haven't suffered that type of bad leadership. So maybe we might be tricked into thinking, well, I may, this may not be applicable to me. The preacher still got something for you. What do we do uh, 
how do we behave, how do we conduct ourselves when we see the wicked prosper? This is what verses uh, 11 and 14 say. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life. And then jumping down to verse 14, the preacher says, There is a vanity that takes place on the earth, and that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. There are two issues the preacher preacher sees with uh, this scenario, and that is that the wicked sometimes prosper for a long time. In fact, some of them are even buried I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but burial in the ancient world is a big deal. I mean, if you got to actually be buried and had all the honors and ceremonies and rituals with that, it meant the gods or our God must approve of you and you did something right through this life because you had a peaceful burial, a peaceful place to rest after a long life. So it's implying here that the preacher is saying, we see wicked people given no judgment in this world. They get peace. They even get to be buried. Now, we all know or have seen in the news or something, a a murder go unsolved. No clues. The person's clearly gotten away. Or a robbery where no one was ever caught. I've always been fascinated by the stories and the work of the Nazi hunters, especially as the country, the nation of Israel, was formed post-World War II. Uh, The most famous of which was the abduction, arrest, and then execution of Adolf Eichmann, who was the architect of the uh, Holocaust. He was captured 15 years after the end of World War II and was executed just two years after that. And that would make sense. You know, the Nazis, they escaped Germany, some of them, and then they're spread throughout the world, largely in South America, and they get, you know, we still want justice, we can find them, they're still, you know, alive to face judgment. But do you know there's still catching and holding Nazis responsible? Just this year, it was reported uh, in the news that uh, German officials charged a hundred-year-old man with aiding and abetting the murder of over 3,500 people while a guard at a concentration camp. They had evidence of this still preserved from actually the the Nazis themselves because they took such great records that they then left behind. There's justice that is that delayed. That was almost 80 years ago. And some of them, we have to conclude, have gotten away with their crimes. Our hearts rightly get sick when we see or know of an evil thing that goes unpunished for so long. We are hardwired to want justice, and that is a good thing. But justice delayed is really hard to endure especially if you're one on the receiving end of the injustice. But there's a second issue the preacher sees, and that's what we read in verse 14. Why do bad things happen to good people? Right? That's like a question that the whole book of Job addresses. Why does a righteous person suffer so much? It's a question that trips up freshmen and intro to philosophy classes in undergrad. The reason God can't exist is because there's good people doing their best in life and they get cancer. There's good people doing their best in life and, you know, they get killed by, in a car accident. 
You know, they're just trying to do their best and something terrible happens to them. In fact, if we were to ask people randomly on the street if they believe in God and they said no, and we followed up with, well, what's some reasons? Bad things happening to good people would probably be pretty high up there on the list of why they don't believe in a God. It's just like the preacher so far, if you've been keeping up with this uh, series, to not give us a straight answer. He actually just throws this out that you know, righteous, uh, wicked things happen to the righteous, and righteous things happen to the wicked. And what he gives us is basically just an encouragement to be thankful and content with what we've been given. And we talked about that a few weeks ago, and that's what he says in verse 15. Just enjoy yourselves, eat, drink, and be joyful as you can. Do the toil with which God has given to you for the days of your life, because God's given it to you. It's a gift. But that doesn't fully satisfy us, maybe. But I want to bring up a different issue. I want to bring up with just two things. There's first this notion in verse 14 that the righteous go the way of the wicked and vice versa. It makes this big assumption that there is such a thing as a good person. I know we like to all think of ourselves as good people. We would probably say we're good Christian people. But I'm a Christian because I'm not good. If I were good by myself, if I you know, could make myself feel contented in life, if I could do all the right things, if I could be a great husband, a great dad, a great worker, I wouldn't have a lot of need for Jesus. But because I'm not a great dad, because I'm not a great husband, because sometimes I'm not a great worker, because I'm not a great son, because I'm just not a great person, I have a drastic need of Jesus Christ. The preacher told us back in chapter 7, verse 20, that there is nobody good. There is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And that sounds an awful lot like Romans 3. Remember Paul? There is none righteous. There's not one. All have turned aside. Nobody does good. Not even one. For all have, fallen, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What we think in this is that we are good people and we deserve good things to happen to us. But that's just works. That is you know, making a deal with God. That's brokering salvation with the God of the universe who says, no, you sin, you break my law, you break commandments that I have given you for a good life. You were born in sin, but I've given you a way of salvation and it's not you because you can't do it i've given you somebody who can be righteous when you're unrighteous i've given you somebody who can be faithful when you are faithless and it's my son and furthermore he's the only good one and even he said when somebody called him good in jesus earthly ministry he says why are you calling me good no one is good but my father now, of course, that was a teaching moment for Jesus, but we should take caution if all of a sudden we start thinking we're good. We are not, but we have a good God. This leads us to a last situation, a final one. And that is for, and the preachers kind of hit on this before, how do we have wisdom when we don't have all the answers? 
And this final situation is one that all of us have certainly experienced, not knowing something. Verses 16 through 17 say, When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out, the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. The preacher once again is hitting on this. I applied my heart to know wisdom. And he has searched out all he could. He's gone high and low. He's read all the books, all the Wikipedia pages. And what does he discover? As wise as he is, there are things that he doesn't know the answers to. There are things in creation, in the beauty of the world around him, the works of God, he calls them, that he cannot solve or figure out. In our age of technology, and especially technological optimism, it is hard for us to conceive that there might be things that we still don't have any answers to. And here are maybe just a few things that are still mysteries. It is still mysterious to scientists for why we have fingerprints. It used to be thought that they helped us uh, grip things, but it's been discovered that they actually don't. It would be better if we didn't have them. We'd be able to grip things better. Uh, it is still a mystery about why we have an appendix. I still have mine, but I know lots of people who don't. They can be excruciatingly painful. You have to have an emergency operation to get them out. And once you get them out, you're fine. There's like no other organ that can do that. Lungs, you need them. Kidneys, you, 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 need, you need one of them. A heart, you certainly need. You need all of them except your appendix, and they still don't know why. Another one, why do we have a dominant hand? I actually thought this one was interesting. Why do you have a dominant hand? Why are some people right-handed and some people left-handed? Evolutionary biologists used to say it had to do with something back, way back in our brains, and that's why we still have them. But scientists have noticed by the same logic of evolution, at some point we should have all achieved ambidextrous. It would have been the survival of the fittest for us to be able to do things equally strong with both arms. Scientific American ran a story about this, and they still don't know why there's dark matter or energy in the universe. We still can't figure out exactly why the Earth's core works the way it does. And, then, and the final one that I thought most interesting, they still don't know what is the point of the universe. We don't know why it came into existence or necessarily how. We have theories. And this is Scientific American is not a Christian publication. And we also don't know if there's any other life out there. As massive as the universe is, now a lack of knowing could cripple us or it could comfort us. Remember, Jesus himself admits to not knowing something, the day or the hour of the end times. Now, he's driving home a point again, but Jesus was both fully divine and fully human and a lot of Big theological words of trinity and hypostatic union get mixed in here. But when Jesus is trying to explain the coming judgment and the coming end of all things to his disciples in Mark 13, he says, we don't know the time or the hour, not even the sun. But instead he tells them, be ready. Don't obsess and speculate about what's coming or when it's going to happen. Live a good and fruitful, 
faithful life. And that sounds a lot like what the preacher said. Eat, drink, and be joyful. Toil the toil of your days because it's a gift from God that you have. We don't have all of the answers. There are great mysteries that we do not understand and we will not understand. But in each of these situations, we can have wisdom from Scripture on how to navigate them. And it's continued always through Jesus' work in this life. He gives us wisdom and guidance to, some, to admit you don't know everything. He gives us wisdom and guidance about why some people, the day of the people that are wicked and evil in the world, get away with things. It's because they're not going to escape judgment. So I skipped over part of this, but that's what verse 13 says. It will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. Jesus speaks a lot about the end, and he is very clear that the wicked have a judgment coming to them. We think, because we're so limited in our view, because we don't know everything, that this life is all that there is. But even scientists cannot prove that. There is a life to come that the Bible speaks about, and at that point, everything that was hidden will be revealed. So when you are struggling with difficult situations, whether it be poor leaders and how to navigate them, whether it be somebody getting away with something wrong and you just know it in your gut and you don't know how to explain it or don't know how to process it, or you don't know what to do with the fact that you don't know everything, there is a word still here for you in Scripture of what to do. There's a word of wisdom to navigate. There is something in Scripture that is given to us by the Spirit that can make our faces shine and the hardness that we have change. And it comes through Jesus, God's ultimate wisdom. Let's go to him in prayer. Most gracious God, thank you for giving us wisdom. Thank you for sending wisdom itself to be with us, that he would become incarnate and take on human frailty and deliver us. Lord, I would pray that when we don't know or have answers, that we would not fear that, but turn to you for wisdom. When we see injustices go on, when we turn to you for wisdom on how to right them, knowing the proper time and just way to respond. Or be with everyone here today, that they would have wisdom in the coming week with all the troubles and toils it will present, and may they delight in the good gifts the ordinary gifts that you give each of us, and may they praise you for them. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen.